Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, today joining us on Tripping Over the Barrel, we have the man, the myth, the legend, Alan Gilmer. Tim, how cool is it that we got Alan Gilmer to come on our podcast? I think when we made our list of guests, when we first started out, Alan was always on it. And we kept we kept telling the digital wildcatter guys, hey, go get Alan. Let's get him on the show. And and finally, we, we just have to go do it. And and after we had Ramona on, it was like, oh, we have to have it on because he's got to rebut all the stuff she said. You know? <laughs> Alan, sure welcome sure in. Where, where are you? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> hey, you'll be fine. Nah, this is going to be fun. So, Alan, where are you calling in from today? Are you in Austin still? I am in Rockport, Texas right now. There you go. That's right. That At least that confirms. So in doing the research for the show and remembering back, I just wanted to go back to a more personal note. I remember, was it August 2017 when Harvey came rolling in? Uh, you were kind of showing pictures or kind of doing, I don't know if it was a podcast or what, from Rockport, uh, and I know you're, you've got close ties down there. You're involved in the community a lot. How has the city responded after Harvey? You know, the really, really fantastically, to be honest with you, uh, that's what I've been spending my time down here is it's been three years trying to get out get my house rebuilt. And, uh, uh, it is, uh, it's been, wow. it's been great to watch how the community has done it. Uh, you know, in, it didn't matter what socioeconomic background you came from. You were out there uh, cleaning up and uh, cleaning up your place, cleaning up your neighbor's place. People pitched in. It really just made you proud to be a Texan. Oh, yeah. And I think, well, of course, you know, it has a profound impact. I live in Houston. So, you know, we kind of saw the same type of thing, everyone pulling together and, you know, cleaning up. And, you know, it becomes a, a marker in your life. And, you know, it, it's now a positive when you when I look back. But, of course, at the time, it, it felt pretty overwhelming. But it was so cool to see how a tragedy can can turn so many positive things, make so many positive things happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Indeed. So, Alan, I, I want to get into your your upbringing. What, what was your background before Drilling Info? And, and to give some context, when when I basically was introduced to you. It was, it was when DI was really starting to take off buddies with Matt Wilcoxon. He moved up here to Denver. It was very obvious you guys were biting into IHS's market share a little bit, but can you share with us and, and share with the audience a little bit of your background prior to DI, even growing up, how you got into oil and gas and um, then leading to the path of, of creating a monster organization? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I grew up a, uh, <laughs> I grew up in El Paso, Texas, which is, you know, a long way from the oil patch. But what's beautiful thing about El Paso, Texas is it's got buried treasure. And uh, my granddad used to take me out to the mountains that run through the middle of town and in southern New Mexico to look for look for minerals, look for rocks and look for hidden treasure. And, um, you know, th that whole concept of looking for treasure is basically what we do in the oil and gas business. And it was, uh, you know, it was fascinating. <laughs> you know, I, you know, the earth is, the earth provides. And I, uh, I just fell in love with it. And I went to college at a Rice University in Houston. 
which is on the other side of Texas. Go Owls. <laughs> Go Owls. And uh, I was going to be a lawyer, and I decided, and I was really, I just, I didn't like philosophy of the law. I didn't like political science. It was all very subjective stuff. And uh, what I, I was taking rocks for jocks because that's what all self-respecting uh, uh, liberal <laughs> arts majors do to get a, to get a geology one on sciences and uh, a geology 101 physical geology you know and uh, my professor at the time took us all on a field trip to Inks Lake and uh, what I remember him doing was drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels and then passing out with his boots a little too close to the fire we had to move him away from the fire keep him from <laughs> catching on fire and and I remember him I was thinking to myself, I can do this. This is in my wheelhouse. So I became a jealous. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So let me, since you, you, did you get a degree in geology then? I got a degree in geology from Rice and went to UTEP for graduate school uh, back in my hometown and got a, a, a graduate degree in geology, uh, economic geology, and a minor in geophysics. And uh, that was in 1987, which was a, uh, a rough time to come into the business. And I was very, very fortunate. Yeah. I got a job with Marathon Oil Company in the research laboratory. Uh, and uh, and I spent six years at Marathon and it was, it was a fantastic place to uh, to learn a profession. Yeah, just two weeks ago, we had Laura Dye on the show. I don't think you know her, but she graduated a degree in geology in 1986 and opened a bakery and uh, People asked her at the time, why did you open a wholesale bakery? And she said, well, I got a degree in geology in 1986. That's what yeah. you did. There was a, there <laughs> not, was a joke, not the best uh, of time to come out with a geo degree, right? No, there was a joke in Denver at the time. It was like, what do you call a, I mean, what do you, what do you call a geologist in Denver? And, you, and the, the punchline was waiter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so marathon, right. You, you had kind of a cool gig there. We're talking late eighties. Talk about your career evolution a little bit. And then when did DI become a thing? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I left marathon and I, you know, I had a great career at marathon. It was two years at the research lab, two years in global seismic acquisition, which just meant that there was two of us. We started up seismic programs all over the world. <laughs> and that was just an incredible job for a young guy, you know, traveling, you know, traveling the world. And then I spent two years in South American exploration and I, and I quit marathon in a 1993 to a startup. A, uh, uh, I thought that I was going to be able to go, uh, be able to earn my way into or with royalties into uh, 3d seismic programs for just setting them up and, and project managing them. And I found out that people were pretty tight fisted with royalties. And so I had a kind of busted business model and um, uh, me and uh, my friends that I had suckered into leaving marathon with me, uh, Jeff Spazzato and uh, James Kyle, we uh, ended up uh, starting a seismic company. We took very old equipment and we uh, replaced the uh, digital uh, uh, backend with a more modern digital backend, but we shot small survey, 360 channel surveys. We shot up to about 10 or 20 square miles surveys. and. Uh, and did that for a couple of years, but that we did that and we used, we shot our way into deals with that. We were the very first to kind of do shoot to earns. Hmm. 
So I'm going to imagine shooting seismic. I've heard some some great stories of guys going out and shooting seismic out in jungles and all kinds of places. You've had to been in some pretty crazy places while shooting seismic around the world. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It was uh, some areas that have absolutely. What's no- the most? What's the most remote? What's the most remote place you've been to shoot seismic? Oh, that had to have been a. Uh, 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 I was down uh, reviewing some seismic survey equipment uh, down in Patagonia, and that was uh, used using old Soviet oh, wow. equipment. And it was a uh, that was a uh, that was a fun one. I think uh, Patrick Ruddy was shooting seismic in the Middle East, right? Didn't that's didn't right. Have a story that's, about that? Yeah. So Alan, we have a fun story with Patrick Ruddy who you may know uh, at Inverus, but he works there. Yeah. Getting stuck, getting stuck out in the desert after going down a sand dune shooting seismic. Patrick is in Saudi. Patrick is an epic human being. I just love that guy. He's the best. And, and he and I always joke, Alan, there's, there's two people we think from New Hampshire that ended up in oil and gas and it's me and it's Patrick, but he's, Got the brain of about 10 of me's, I'll tell you that. He's a, he's a smart, smart dude and love that he's working at your company, probably doing some really neat things on the, um, on the platform that he's, that he's managing right now. Yeah. No, he is uh, so, so great guy. <laughs> That's all. Sorry, go ahead, Alan. Go ahead. Yeah, he is. He is <laughs> he's something else, right? And he's probably your only employee that's in Scotland right now, I'm guessing. He is our... He is our Runs the Scottish office, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So So, let's talk about the embryo of of drilling info. What led to this? So you have a seismic company. What led you to kind of starting drilling info? So, you know, uh, as I was taking deals as a small seismic company, uh, I was kind of dependent on the people showing me the deals to determine whether these were things I wanted to take on or not. And I found out pretty quickly that uh, uh, when uh, that there's a uh, that uh, let's just say there's a moral hazard involved in uh, depending on people selling you stuff for all the information necessary to uh, to do that. And uh, my friend Martin Niblink was the first guy to really kind of come up with this idea of permits on the web, and and then I started kind of expanding on it. And my buddy Bill Fowler. Was a landman in Austin as well came in and was like, you know, let's we should figure out how to get land on here. And we just, we started thinking, you know, the the world of, that we live in, which is empty software and raw data, and that everybody goes out and does the same things to do the same things over and over again. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of the work that's taking place is rote, and uh, and then the creative part is uh, is is just at the very end of the road work. And uh, I was thinking, what if we could kind of build a platform in which uh, that data doesn't get to have to be reloaded over and over and over again, and that we can build upon uh, the work that's been going on over and over. And, uh, and that, you know, that actually we spend our time or the vast majority of our time doing brain work rather than road work. And uh, that was kind of the idea of it. And if you were an independent oil and gas guy, in the time that we started, unless you worked for a very large independent like an Apache or, or, or somebody like that, you you're, you worked a railroad county district, a railroad a commission district, or you worked a half a state or, or three counties or something like that, because 
that was the geology you knew. You knew who the players were. You knew what stuff cost. But you, you were kind of completely oblivious to uh, well economics anywhere else. And, uh, and I think that uh, that was what we looked at was what, what can we do to lower the, uh, that first step of evaluating deals in areas that you're not familiar with? to make sure you're spending your time in places that have the highest return. And, uh, you know, and I think if people come into the business today, kind of take it for granted that you can be an independent anywhere. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case in, a, in a 2000 when we started. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So, so leveraging some of the, the new technology that was coming out, I think it was, it was fairly revolutionary. And, and by the time that, that I was exposed to drilling info, call it 2007, 2008, you guys were doing more than just data, right? You were really preaching the visualizations of that data, which is near and dear to myself and Tim. Um, but Alan, one of the things I want to talk about with Drilling Info is, is how did you build such a fun culture? It always, all of the Drilling Info events, whether it was, uh, the, the name is escaping me of the place we used to go after NAEP. You guys always did it at the same, same place in, in Houston. Oh, but, uh, whether it was that, your user conferences, it, what was it? Yeah, you know, I, I think it just came from the fact that we hired well <laughs> and, uh, and that came from, uh, that just kind of came from a personal philosophy and that was life's too short. Life's too short, short to work with assholes. And, uh, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Life's too short to work with assholes. Great. And, absolutely. And, you know, and, and you get to choose and, uh, you know, we cho- we chose to surround ourselves with people that were smart and and that were that were fun and interesting and young and and uh, brought uh, you know brought a uh, brought energy to the table and uh, that's what this that's 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 how you evolve a that's how you evolve a company that's how you evolve an industry and we embraced it and and it it showed I think outside outside onlookers like us like Jeremy and I we could kind of see how much fun internally everybody was having. Everyone you meet really enjoys working there. People stuck for a long time. Uh, Ramona, who I've known for years, who I've met at Drilling Info, uh, you know, always talks so highly of, of being there from the early days on. I, I, I do want to kind of ask you about the name Drilling Info. Obviously, when you started, you're talking about permits and, and rig data, but pretty quickly you moved into supplying production data and things like that. Did, did the name drilling info, I've always wondered this, did it ever hurt the sales process at all? Cause it's, it was more than drilling info. You started supplying geophysical software at one point and it was still drilling info. Did it ever kind of, did you ever have to really rethink it before this Enveris name change? You know, uh, uh, that, that's a great, that's a perfect question because you know, drilling info, it's kind of a terrible name to be in, to be honest with you. <laughs> really providing real drilling info other than permits. And, uh, uh, and we would have people call us thinking that it was that we were providing, you know, stage information or something like that. Like, and we'd have to say no. Huh. Then after a while, drilling info be kind of kind of became a brand, right? People, people recognized the brand. And so uh, we thought about changing the name several times after we started it, but once it became a brand, it became a harder thing to, uh, to, to get rid of because everybody knew the brand. So then, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing there were a few pretty substantial money rounds that came in and I want to go back to the culture question. 
were you able to maintain that same kind of culture when you had the financial forces behind you saying time to run really, really fast. We're going to keep a closer eye on things now because we put a bunch of money into this. Were you able to sort of maintain the same culture or did the money proverbially change things? Well, I, I mean, uh, so for the first 12 years until 2012, you know, we were, we were self-funded and, uh, you know, or, and the investors were, were, uh, and no one was a huge investor and no one was breathing down our neck. And then in 2012, we did take on uh, private equity dollars. And, uh, you know, when you take on private equity dollars, you, you certainly bring on a, uh, uh, a forced discipline that frankly, uh, we, yep. we chose very well with our private equity sponsor. It was a, it was a tech it was a tech equity group out of New York called Inside Venture Partners. And uh, really what they brought to the table was ways of just doing a lot of the things we were doing that much better. And, I, you know, the analogy I use was uh, as we would walk into a different space or something like that, you know, it was kind of like being in a dark room and you're feeling around the walls trying to figure out how to, how to take it to market. What's your business model going to be? How are you going to price it? All those kind of things. And, um, and, and when we joined Insight, we got in with, uh, they had a really great little group called Insight Onsite. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was kind of like a, a, their own in-house McKinsey. And so it was all of a sudden like the lights went on and you could see, you could see what a lot of people had done before and which, what things worked and which, what things didn't. And we became that much more efficient. And I think that what people in it, it uh, drilling info uh, became excited by uh, just looking at what the best, you know, seeing what best practices could be in other industries and, and applying them. And, um, you know, I, and I have to say that because we had such, we've always really focused on trying to bring in very high quality people. Uh, that means that the people that we have are really enthusiastic about learning things that they don't. And, uh, you know, no one, no one sits around on their laurels thinking, you know, I know how to do all this stuff and we're going to, you know, we, we have had it. We always had a culture of how can we do things better? And, um, you know, and, and, and also a culture in saying, try things, you know, it may not work. Uh, you know, we may mess up, but let's, let's fail fast and figure out how we're going to, how to, how to get, get through it because you don't know until you try. And, uh, uh, that was, uh, uh, and I, so our folks kind of thrived through the dis kind of the discipline because everyone recognized that if, if we can succeed in this kind of culture, then everybody's, uh, everybody's, uh, CV is going to benefit from this. So you're, we're going to, you know, the whole goal was if you've got, if you've got drilling info and now in Varus on your resume and, uh, you were there for a while, then you are, uh, somebody people want to hire. Yeah. yeah I sure. agree with that. So I want to go back to that moment when you, you took on that first PE investment, because I've heard this story multiple times, once from a guy that worked for me who, you know, and this is really a test. What I'm really trying to do is brag on you a little bit, Alan. Alan. I hope it doesn't embarrass you, but so you guys, you took on the private equity and then there was a party, you know, it was, Hey, this is a great time. We're going to rent out some bar and everybody goes down there. And the, the way, uh, I've heard it is that there's Alan Gilmer 
standing in front of the bar with a duffel bag full of cash, like some sort of a bank robber, just handing out cash to drilling info employees as they came in. Can you, can you walk me through that episode? Is that, how much fun was that? First of all, that had to be a blast to be able to do. But then the other thing is, it, I think it also reflects on the culture that you were able to build there because they all talk about that and they have so much respect for that moment, what you did there. Then anyway, can you just go, walk us through that? <laughs> you know, it was, uh, when we first did the private equity deal, you know, we had a lot of investors take their money off the table and I was able to take for the first time, a little bit of money off the table. And, uh, uh, and, you know, and there, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of employees that didn't have stock at the time or didn't have this, that, or the other. And I, you know, and I said, you know, it's, uh, this is a, I, I couldn't have ever been here without all of those folks. And, uh, uh, so I called up my wife and I said, you know, in order, we're, we're having this party to celebrate this and, uh, and not everybody has something to celebrate. And I said, you know, what I'd like to do is have everybody have something to celebrate and make it a surprise. And, uh, 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 I, so I called up my wife and I said, Hey, uh, honey, uh, what if we take some, you know, <laughs> try this with your family. So your wife, sometimes <laughs> I said that. What if, <laughs> if you say it a mouth, I'm going to fall over. I said, uh, what, what if we take $200,000 out of our bank account right now and, and uh, give it away this afternoon? And she said, if I be there, I'll, uh, hey, she goes, let's do that. I'll be there. And, uh, uh, and oh, it, wow. And so the funny part was going to the bank and trying to get $200,000 in hundred dollar bills. And, uh, we, we went to like three, <laughs> nobody, had it, nobody had it in hundred dollars. We, we ended up with like, you know, the last $30,000 in fifties and twenties. But, uh, so nobody expected it. And is, and anybody that had, you know, had shares of stock or, you know, they, they had their shares of stock, but anybody that didn't, when they showed up at this party, uh, you know, uh, they got a, you know, I gave them a, you know, it was, it was just fun to, uh, just hand people a, thousand dollars at a time and it was the funnest thing we've ever done oh man see that that had to be i mean that that just that is sounds like such a fun thing to do of course the pain of no uh, well I, first of all i could not make that call to my wife but <laughs> to it just feels like it, it's got to be so great to be able to just do that it, it, gratifying to you and of course it did cement these guys you know their thought of wow this is a great place you know this this is how it works well, you know, it's a, uh, when we found, Santa Gilmer, uh, you know, I didn't have any money and, uh, my partner, uh, uh, Mark Nibbling, we didn't have any, we were literally working out of our houses and, uh, uh, figuring out how we're going to make, you know, uh, I was paying rent on a, on a, on a, on my place in Austin and, uh, you know, trying to just figure out how we're going to do it month to month. And, uh, we never forgot that. And the other aspect about it was just, uh, uh, we've been, we've made sure that a lot of people benefited, you know, uh, there people that work at our company have, uh, a lot of them have equity ownership. You know, you're, you're there, you're running something of importance. You're going to have some equity in it. And, and, uh, and I know Mark, uh, one time I went out in the parking lot and Mark was just sitting out there smoking, he smoked cigarettes and he was looking around and what are you doing? He said, you know, I'm just looking at all these cars that we, that, uh, that, uh, you know, help pay for. And, uh, 
college thinking about the college educations we help pay for and and uh and all of it done without you know it's no one is taking charity here everybody's working their ass off doing things that other people value enough to pay for it because it's kind of a magical thing and uh you know and i think you are santa it's it's santa gilbert that's the beautiful that is why i'm a free market capitalist i i I don't, I, I see these kind of things. There's, you'd have had to have been a multi-billionaire in order to, to charitably do the kind of things that we did as a couple of broke guys. Man, that's just freaking awesome. Alan, you know, that is really, really incredible. I, I, I think oftentimes it goes completely the other way. The money comes in and people get greedy right? They, they see the big prize and they want to protect their piece of that pie. And, and you've clearly gone in the complete opposite direction. So kudos on you for that. Another thing, Alan, that's always stood out to me about you. I, I like to go to LinkedIn pages when we have people come on this podcast. We have 456 mutual connections, which tells me you connect with everybody, which is awesome, right? And you're accessible, which is, which is super cool because a lot of executives in this space are not. So kudos to you for that. Um, I guess the, the question that I have or what I want to bring it back to is, I think, Tim, we both went to the Drilling Info user conference in Austin in 2011. This might be my personal highlight in oil and gas. I was talking to some people and they're like, you're a sports fan, right? I'm like, oh, huge, especially baseball. They're like, well, but there's somebody coming tomorrow. It's going to be kind of a big deal. You know, Billy Bean shows up as the keynote speaker. Tim, how cool is that? Well, it was really cool, but you had to explain to me who he was beforehand. And you, said, well, you know the book Moneyball? It's about him. I was like, oh, okay. Now I get it. But he, you, Alan, you have to know how geeked up Jeremy was when we're walking through the hotel to go there. It was it was like a kid at Christmas. So great. Hanukkah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm chomping at the bit to ask him a question. I figured everybody would want to have questions, but it's nerve wracking to stand up in front of a thousand people and ask a question. Right. So I'm, I'm a diehard baseball fan and, and I had to just rib him a little bit. Right. I'm a, I'm a Red Sox fan. So I raise my hand and somebody walks over with a microphone. All the eyes in the room are staring at me and, and I, I had to rib him a little bit. I said, so, you know, Billy Bean, this is this is a great story. You know, kudos to you on what you've done with the A's. But is there any part of you that has regret over the fact that you could have been the GM that broke the curse for the Boston Red Sox and then won a second championship while you're still looking for your first in Oakland? And he was just like, well, actually, as a matter of fact, uh, I was given equity with the A's and I made a lot more money than I would have, despite the Red Sox offering me the highest GM contract in the history of sports. So, yeah, I think it worked out well (laughs) in your face, Jeremy. So I still won, but no, I mean, he, he was, uh, that was cool. So, so tell me like, what was the thought process that you had? I know, you know, data driven company, data driven guy. How did that come together? Well, you know, we were, uh, uh, we were kind of among the first to really start to, uh, uh, look and try to extract, uh, operational efficiencies from the rocks and things like that using, uh, you know, nonlinear multivariate analytics, uh, you know, uh, statistics and, uh, uh, and I thought, who better to come talk to us about that, you know, exactly that than uh, Billy Bean. And, uh, you know, I, I loved Moneyball. I loved the story. I loved how it was, uh, you know, how, how that 
technology had completely uh, uh, upended uh, a sport, you know, an, an old industry. And I thought the analogies were perfect. Totally. The thing about it was Billy was uh, 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 in the playoffs and, and you know, our, our, our user meeting was, was right then, right there kind of uh, during the playoffs. And I didn't know whether he was, you know, he said, you know, if we go to the World Series, I'm not going to be able to come. And so it was back and forth, and then he made, and, and and he said, "But I really want to come." And I, he said, and he said, "Let let me make a deal with you." He goes, "If if we make the World Series, I'll do a live video presentation from the field of the World Series and do live Q and A." Oh and man! Series, and I'll come to Austin. And I said, "Done deal. That sounds great." And uh, you know that That's tremendous. Was, and he, you know, he was such a gracious fellow, and uh, what a great guy. I have another Inverus uh, uh, yeah. baseball story. Uh, we bought a trading and risk uh, software company in Chicago. And uh, right after we closed on it, it was, uh, you know, that was the year that they, uh, uh, they were going to the world series and they had won the, uh, they had won the league championship or they had, they were, uh, the, they had won the game to take them to the league championship. And, uh, uh, okay. And I thought they had won the league championship. So I wasn't really keeping up with baseball that year. And so I sent an <laughs> email saying congratulations on winning the league championship and going to the, the, the uh, World Series. And immediately, Colin Westmoreland sends me an email and says, oh, Alan, you really, really stepped in it this time. <laughs> you know, sometimes I was <laughs> for, for uh, you know, for saying stuff I wasn't supposed to say. But uh, he said, you know, the goat, you know, the whole Cubby's curse and all the whole thing. And, yeah. and, uh, had their own to get rid of. Oh, and yeah. I was like, Shh, you know, God damn. And I said, well, so, uh, I'm not going to be able to walk this back, can I? And he goes, nope. And I said, there's no real stat on it, is there? <laughs> I said, no. And I said, so I said, <laughs> the following email 10 minutes later to everybody, this is the first impression of this company who they're really worried about. Yeah, you know, whenever you acquire, <laughs> it's a lot of fear about, being part of a new company and all everything's changing. And so then I, I send this email saying, Hey, uh, uh, I understand that you're, you know, that you, you just go into the league championship, but here's, and I know about the curse. So, uh, and I know you can't walk it back. So I'm just going to double down. Not only are you going to go to the world series, you're going to win the world series. And uh, <laughs> when that happens, but you haven't you're done have to tell everybody. Years. Yeah, that that you know your CEO in Austin, Texas, was the one that broke the Cubbies' curse. So I remind them of that. All <laughs> wow, I get that. We should make sure the Cubs know that story. That is fantastic. I, they yeah, I mean that that's not no uh, no small change. It's no small change. They hadn't been to the World Series in over seventy years. They hadn't won in one hundred and eight. So they were on super high alert. They had the best team in the league last that year, and and just snuck it out in, in extra innings in, in uh, the World Series. So that that's funny. I can only imagine if if I was in their shoes, I'd be like, what the hell? These guys are buying us. Come on. <laughs> so Alan, I want to bring it back. I want to bring it back full circle to. So we had Ramona Hovey. We mentioned it back in whatever episode it was. And uh, I remember you writing a blog post on the Drilling Info page once called The Waltz Across Texas. And then Ramona actually brought it up on our podcast. And she was talking about, was it you, Ramona, and I think it was Melinda Faust in a car just bouncing from one city in Texas to another over a week and how great it was. And, you know, it really – 
it, it takes me back to what it was like to be that early days entrepreneur type of company where you, you just have, that's what you have to do. We're going to get in the car. We're going to go drive over a place. We're going to go visit our clients. And anyway, so you wrote a blog post on it. Can you just kind of go back to those early days and, and kind of talk about what that was like and specifically the waltz across Texas? <laughs> well, you know, we, uh, there's just never any better way than just to sit down with people and talk to them. Right. And, uh, uh, we called it the waltz across Texas. And, even though there was a little bit of incursion into Louisiana here and there and some New Mexico here and there and some Oklahoma here and there. But uh, we would do it twice a year. And it was always me and uh, Martin Payne. Uh, and Martin Payne was an early uh, partner of mine in that. He was a drilling engineer turned, uh, uh, and we uh, we went out and uh, Melinda Faust, who we hired, uh, Melinda was a, a was working a golf course as a beer cart girl. And uh, we hired her to be, uh, to be kidding. Melinda, Melinda has the, you know, the best, I'd say marketing communication person I ever met. I mean, she just, you know, and uh, so she came to, to work with us in Austin. Uh, uh, we got Melinda, uh, we got a, a Ramona. A Martin had worked for Ramona's dad, who's drilling engineer at TXO. So when he was at TXO and, uh, and so we hired her and we, we did the worst thing you could do with, uh, with a Ramona. We, we st- stuck her on a phone and had her make cold calls. <laughs> is really she talented did mention a lot that. of things, but boy, making cold calls was not in her wheelhouse, but, uh, uh, <laughs> really knew our system really knew how to uh, demo it. And, uh, uh, but we would do these, we just all load up into a suburban, and uh, that's where I really learned to love Walmart because you can buy underwear and uh, you can you can buy a week's worth of clothing, uh, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. And sometimes you actually need it when you forget to pack. Oh yeah, I I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the the uh, Walmart in Frisco, Colorado, where it's like I'm up here to go skiing and I forgot my gloves, so <laughs> I can pay go. seventy dollars at the resort. Or I could go to Walmart and spend six bucks. That's exactly right. I said, yeah, I always so, tell us, Ben, for people that hate Walmart, you've clearly never been in Graham, Texas, needing a necktie and a laser pointer at two in the morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So I've got, I've got one, uh, one final question, quirky one. So, you know, you, you do a lot of these podcasts and, and, you know, interviews and you're on videos. What, what's going on in your garage, man? I see this crazy big dinosaur looking thing in the background. What do you got going on in there, man? Yeah, that's uh, uh, the art barn. It's uh, the house we bought here in Rockport. The second owner of it had uh, built this big uh, uh, 4,000 square foot insulated barn. So my, you know, my wife ends up, you know, light loving the house. I just love the idea of having a man cave, a man. Cavern. So, uh, uh, we've been building out this, uh, you know, the, the barn is, is a really cool place. And you guys come down to Rockport sometime and I'll give you a tour of it, but it's, uh, uh, it's all the things sure. we've acted over the years and, uh, things that we just didn't have room for, but now I have just a tremendous amount of room for. I say four thousand square foot barn. That's a that's some room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Uh, it's it's like a, a 
it's it, it's definitely uh, a guy, a kind of a a sixty year old guy's Disneyland. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sixty, but it still sounds like Disneyland to me. Yeah, so, Alan, we're gonna we're gonna cut it off here. I just wanted to thank you for your your graciousness and joining us. I think you you told Tim, hey, I need five minutes because I'm finishing a board meeting. So, <laughs> thank you for for jumping right off your board meeting and coming into us and. Appreciate you being such a, uh, a gracious representative of our industry and somebody who, candidly, a lot of us young dudes really look up to. So, so please continue being the legend that you are, my man. Well, I sure really appreciate it, Alan. Thanks for coming on. I sure appreciate the invitation. Thanks, guys.